Hey everybody, thank you for listening to the Small Town Podcast. Connor here. If you find this episode valuable, be sure to share it with your friends and leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you're listening. Also, I invite you to check us out on Patreon if you're interested in helping to support this podcast. You can find a link to that in the description of this episode. All right, enjoy the conversation. All right, Professor Joy Moore. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Joy Moore received her BA in English Literature and Creative Writing at the University of Arkansas, during which time she attended the International Writers' Course at the National University of Ireland, Galway. Galway? Galway. Galway. Mm-hmm. And, earned, and earned her MFA at Pacific University. Her poems have appeared in Prairie Schooner, where she won a Glenna Luce mm-hmm. Award the South Carolina Review, and Hunger Mountain, among others. Her interests include contemporary poetry and prose and theology and literature. In addition to teaching courses in composition and creative writing, she serves as assistant director for the Honors Community and manages Modero Coffee and Barefoot's Joe, Union's local coffee shops and music venue. And this is all at Union University, if it didn't say that. So, anything you want to add to that? No, that's great. (laughs) Okay, so I guess before anything else, I was trying to think of how to start this. And I think before anything else, I just want to say thank you, because there are some people, we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record, but there are some people that influence your life sort of behind the scenes. And even though you don't interact with them a lot personally, Mm -hmm. they have, they influence you almost on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, you've been one of those people. Mm -hmm. Um... You know, it was the the concerts at Barefoot's Joe and stuff like that. And and now, as I've been getting into coffee, it's the coffee that I've been enjoying um, every week has been Modero and Barefoot's. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a great addition to my life. And it's been an experience that my wife and I have been sharing together. We've been getting, getting, been getting into it together. And uh, and so I guess, yeah, before we before we get into all the stuff we're going to talk about. I just want to say thank you because it's been very enriching. So no, oh, that's such yeah. a kind uh, thing to say. Thank you. Yeah. Um, can I say something to that? Actually? Oh yeah, to sure. Say that when I, um, when I train the baristas, I often will try to pull out, this is, this is a bit out of context, but I'll pull this Camus quote where he says that, um, these great, I forget how he says it, but that, um, in essence, that some of the best or most important conversations that we have happen in doorways. Hmm. And um, I'll, I'll tell them a lot of the things that we do are to shape an environment in which other things happen. So we're not okay. always the ones shaping, you know, we don't shape the conversation that happens in the coffee shop. We don't invite, um, you know, a question or something, but we are, we are shaping an environment in which those things can happen. And our work very much gives that um, shaping and that culture and that tone. And um, so it, it's actually one of the great gifts of my work has been that so many other things happen through the shops. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I just think it's really lovely to think about th- that we get to do that. We get to make, we, we get to make um, or shape places where, where those things can happen um, and hope that, hope that the tone that we've set invites 
richer things to happen. And, and, you know, of course the coffee is another dimension of that, but, um, anyway, it's, it's been a, it's been one of the great beauties when, when people will come back and say some of the most important conversations for me have happened in these shops or, um, you know, these, these, this concert was really meaningful or, you know, I'm interested in coffee now because of this, all those are the things that we're actually trying to accomplish, but doing, doing it in a, um, um, a more indirect way, I suppose I should say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this actually transitions perfectly to some of the stuff that I wanted to talk about with you, because I remember sitting in Modero and thinking like, there's something about this space and I, I didn't have, and I still don't have the vocabulary to put words to it. So this is, I, I think hopefully you can speak into this. I remembered thinking like this space, this coffee shop is facilitating both casual conversation mm-hmm. and an intense studious business at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like on, on one hand, you'll have two people just shooting the breeze with each other. Mm-hmm. And then right on your other side, you'll have someone working on their thesis or, or mm-hmm. something really intense. And I'm not sure how coffee shops pull that off. <laughs> like you see it it's in every coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Like, is it the coffee itself or is there something about the space that facilitates that? Uh, that's yeah. a great question. Um, I, I can speak to Madero in particular and then maybe try to okay. generalize from there. Um, when we were, uh, so I was tasked to, um, you know, propose, a, propose a coffee shop in the new library and that, that, um, conversation went over many years and, okay when Dr. Dub got here and we started, um, he, you know, he announced the library is going to be built. So I knew, okay, we're going to do this coffee shop. And it was a, a really wonderful. I got to work with, um, TLM, the Lisa Deaton there, who's the designer and stayed really quiet about what we were doing. So I worked, um, with a couple of students in particular, our, our leadership team had a, had a, voice and certain choices, but it was really quiet and, and partly because I wanted it to be, um, I wanted, I wanted it to, you know, open with, with a great bit of surprise and a, a kind of gift that people could come into and enjoy. And I, as we were working through that process, I understood that we needed to think about what it was we were trying to do right I mean just mm-hmm. to begin at a kind of missional and vision um, dimension and I kept thinking okay we're setting up a coffee shop inside of a library and we're on a university campus and those are contextual um, um, dimensions that we have to take into account and that I give I give a particular life to this shop so where I came where I came to was a um, was an idea of trying to be kind of urban intellectual is the phrase that I worked with internally, which was to say, to bring, to bring to union and to Jackson, um, a kind of coffee shop that they might encounter in a larger city Mm -hmm. that, that had a, um, a little bit more of that urban feel, partly because we don't have it. And I wanted to do something distinct from Barefoots, which is a, a much more casual and relaxed environment. Yes. And then, secondly, I wanted it to. 
I wanted it to support the life of a university and the, and the life of the people who are part of a university, right? Which means the students who are studying for their classes, and it means the faculty who are working on their own research and preparing to teach these students, and the staff who are involved in supporting the day-to-day doings of mm-hmm. a university. So now how do you do that in a coffee shop? It sounds very ambitious to say we want to do that, but I did want to have an environment that implicitly supported the intellectual life. I know that's ambitious, but that's really what I was hoping we could do. And some of that came through in the ways that we were designing the shop. So trying to keep things really clean, um, pulling on some of the trends that are going on at large in city, you know, city design, but, but also intellectual design. And, um, you know, I'd say one thing I wish we did have that we don't have is some some sound absorption because that's uh-huh. one issue we don't have in there, and I didn't. I, that's one thing I didn't anticipate. And you know, you learn these things after you've yeah, done it. Yeah. So we we do have a kind of noisy element that shows. Well, the up. trade-off though is the big windows, and that's a really nice. The trade-off is yeah, I know aren't the yeah. windows they're amazing. Yeah. And, and when we first got the, um, when I first was given the the spread, I wasn't even sure we were going to have that area and I'm so glad we do because Mm. it's just it is so well used and so I think that that was part of what we were trying to cultivate when we were setting up the shop and I think that some of that you know comes through even in the two-person tables you Mm -hmm. know there's there's dimensions of there's more of those than the four and the six person so you can do group work but it's much more um, inclined toward individual or uh, individual work reflection or, you know, conversation of two people. And we even wrote our mission statement around the idea that there's a time for everything and trying to um, help encourage, among our students in particular who are inundated with um, busyness and and having, uh, I think, a hard time sometimes knowing how to prioritize their days and and what to what to do when and how to not let it all run together and overwhelm them was to try to help them think there is a time for things there's a time to study there's mm-hmm. a time to reflect on what you're learning um, or or to pray in a, in a more reflective way there's a time to have a conversation with a friend there's a time to relax and have fun and whether that's to go outside and have fun or to just enjoy a conversation but to try to help them think that I can make space for certain activities and limit that space when I need to in order to do the other things I need to do. So all that was going on in um, a kind of under uh, undergirding missional vision for what we were hoping to do. Now, if I were to try to generalize that in a larger sense of coffee shops, I think I would say that to some degree those are human activities that we need to we're not necessarily all studying in our days, but we are working on something. We're, we're doing some kind of work or we're um, trying to understand a particular kind of work. And so we need spaces to, um, you know, move through material and give it time to work on us. Okay. Um, we need com- we need conversation. That's part of what it is to be human is to talk to each other yeah, and to absolutely. listen and, you know, share. Um, and, and, and it's an important dimension of human life whether we do it enough or not, I don't know, but it is, is to make space for reflection and thinking and um, working through in our own selves what, what it is we're, we're trying to make sense of, whatever that is in the day. So those are, to some degree, um, you know, parts of human life. And it may be that, you know, Starbucks has really normalized the third place, the going out for your coffee 
in America and or at large too, but it's a it was a big movement in America for us, for us to have a third place. And so maybe because of that, we take those activities out of the home now in a way that hmm. um, you know we didn't before. In other countries, you know, there was there were salons and um, pub culture where where these kinds of activities happened in those settings. And I think probably because of things like prohibition, we didn't develop those same kinds of um, those same kind of cultures. Yeah. So that the coffee shop culture became our mode for that. And it's filling in the gap. Maybe. Yeah. But I mean, but this is really old. I mean, the the um, the coffee shop culture, you know, dates back a long time ago. Okay. And um, I, I, when I talked with the Breeses this fall, I gave them a, a bit more history, which was, which was fun. And I, I talked about how in England, the first shop in England was around 1650 really? in Oxford. Wow. Mm-hmm. It started in okay. Oxford and it's still there. Okay. You can visit it. And <laughs> all, awesome. all over the world, the kind of um, coffee gatherings or coffee shops, whatever they were, sometimes had nicknames and um, so sometimes they were not seen as positive from the, yeah. from political leaders because they would create some alternate ways of thinking that mm-hmm. were going on. So you can understand maybe some, some of the terminology which should, should show up, excuse me. But in mm-hmm. England, they um, developed a nickname called the Penny Universities. Okay. And I love that because the the old, the whole idea was at the time you could come in and buy a cup of coffee with, in essence, a penny, mm-hmm. and you could take part in an intellectual conversation that was growing you as a person. And I think we're still doing that today, yeah. which is a lot of fun. And, and in fact, it's um, made me think about, I didn't realize we were hailing back to this thing, but we have a dollar cup of coffee if you bring your own mug. Yeah. Yeah. And that was just something we've done over... Yeah years and I've kind of fought to keep it even though it's not really a money maker uh, but but I thought look at this we're actually hailing back to this early practice of recognizing that you can come into a coffee shop and have a kind of education uh-huh. um, by way of the conversations that go on in those places and uh, so anyway I hope we're still yeah. doing that for people yeah no that's great I really like your dollar coffee thing by the yeah, way thanks, I hope yeah. that sticks around yeah, I hope try. that y'all don't get rid no, of that no, I try to keep yeah. it. That's good. yeah okay so you mentioned intellectual design you're talking about the things in the space that encourage intellectual growth such as uh smaller tables instead of big tables is that what you mean by that i guess so um i don't know that i could do a direct link you know in order to promote a a culture of you know loving books we therefore have x at the same time i think that that was all working together for me mm-hmm. in the in trying to in trying to define what it is that the culture that we want to provide how do we shape that what and so to define that was the goal and right. that, I think that's what I'm going toward was trying to think about supporting the life of a university yeah. and and also um the urban element, I think, was was important because it meant doing something distinct from barefoots at the same time flowing with barefoots, right? Mm-hmm. And so how we did that, I, yeah, it's not that it was a direct line, but I do think the two-person tables was a, certainly a choice. I was really thankful for all the windows. Yeah, I think the windows that's are a, great. I do think that's a big effect that actually does support those things. Mm-hmm. And that was not my doing. That just was part of the structure, and I'm thankful for it because it yeah. really does affect how people. Because 
there's there's just an engagement when you have that kind of light, where both in the in, with text and with people. I think this the clean the clean lines uh, was part of it in trying to make a shop that wasn't that didn't command a lot of your attention in like mm. fussy kind of design. So just clean, kind of a clean layout and. I guess that's all I know to say. That's about interesting. It. <laughs> I didn't I didn't I didn't pick up on that, but you're right. It's if you were to compare Modero Coffee Shop to the rest of campus, it would look kind of strange. Like it doesn't fit with the same design that you see in other places on campus, but it's not in a way that draws attention to itself. Mm-hmm. Like the lights overhead are kind of weird and kind of funky, mm-hmm. but but you don't actually pay attention to them. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. There's something about it that that keeps itself out of the way. Yeah, I think that was part of it because I know lighting was really hard. That that was one of the more frustrating choices because so many of the light design, the light um, fixtures that I yeah. saw, I did not like them, and I could not figure out what to do. And I I'd seen those small pendants, and we bought those, and then we were trying to find something that might work with that, but be and you know because you have en- you have to have enough interest design-wise, to make it engaging and not flat. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to have too much because I didn't want it to, again, command too much attention or be fussy or, um, yeah. So, again, kind of clean lines, keeping things fairly, um, you know, the back wall is just that kind of marble design with the menu. And we have some some things you see in terms of the coffee preparation and, and equipment, but all in all trying to keep it really smooth so that, you yourself, when you come in as a customer, feel at ease. Mm-hmm. You don't feel any kind of... This is an activity I do with the baristas where we imagine the experience of walking in certain places. And we talk about what's the experience of walking in that particular place. And we do it for things beyond coffee shops. We just talk about when you walk in this particular store, what happens to you? What happens to your body? What are you reading in terms of your experience? emotionally even and we talk about how all those all those facets of design actually affect that so when you feel anxious or hurried or things like that that can come through by way of fluorescent lighting and color choices and the and what you encounter when you first walk in a shop or 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 a store and so so i i use that as a example for them to understand why keeping things neat and clean and orderly actually makes the customer feel at ease. Uh-huh. And that's part of why our work has to, has to pay deep attention to things like cleaning because it actually helps the customer be at ease. Yeah. But the customer doesn't necessarily think about that. They might now cause they're listening to me say it, but it, you know, in general, they're not, they're not always conscious as, as you and I aren't always conscious when we walk into any given store, but right. those experiences that we have are actually deciding sometimes whether or not we go back to those places. It's why we choose to go to certain stores over others that offer the same products because, and sometimes we'll do so even when it's more expensive because of the experience. Or sometimes we'll say, I'm willing to go 
through the more difficult experience. Difficult is too strong a word, but the less comfortable experience yeah. because it's cheaper. I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm even aware I'm making that choice because I need to get those three, those three things and they're going to cost me less. So I'm just going to hurry through that store. So we do this. And I, and I think that's important for us to understand on, on our side that if we really want to create a place where um, students, faculty, staff, Jackson, anybody visiting comes in and feels at ease, feels like they can go into the work they have planned to do for this next hour, then part of what we have to do is keep things calm, orderly, Mm -hmm. um, professional, you know, all of that is on us to help set that tone. And that happens in, at the shop level, it happens with the barista's person in the interaction they have. It happens with, you know, how messy it is behind the bar. It happens at all kinds of levels. But, but, but I like to think about that because if we really want to do that for a customer, we need to do that kind of work. And mm-hmm. they need to understand that that's the effect on a person, even when the person doesn't realize that effect is happening to them. Yeah, that's great. I heard a story one time about a, I think it may have actually been a, uh, like a bar, like a pub. Um, but it was, it was designed to look like an old church, hmm. like a small cathedral. And, um, no, it wasn't a pub. It was, it was some kind of store. And the, so the person, you know, buys their, buys whatever they went in there to buy and they've got their, they've got their shopping bag and then they just kind of stand there and this people noticed that this was happening. It wasn't just one person. And they realized that it was the space it had such a liturgical feel mm-hmm. and such a lingering feel to it that after people would buy it, they they just kind of stood around like like now what do we do? It's like there was something else. Interesting. And so the space itself mm-hmm. was was encouraging a certain kind of action or participation or something. Um, people didn't want to leave. They felt like there was something else, like there was a next step. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what was going through my head while you were talking. I was talking with Dr. Walls. Um, she teaches in the French department and, or she's the chair and this has been a year or so ago, but she's interested in these kinds of topics too, about um, space, space and design. And, um, I, I would actually love to follow up with her on this because she was she was citing someone someone's work that I would like to read. But she made a comment how there's there's a ton of research on the on the ways that s- the shape of a building affects us. And so, for example, in a church, a high ceiling invites us to think about um, mm-hmm. sort of grandeur and majesty of God yeah. in a way that a flat ceiling is not going to do. And so it's really interesting that because we don't always recognize that it takes. Um, we might, if, if we're in it, either by way of surprise, as this person that you're mm-hmm. describing, you know, comes in and is caught off guard by this experience. Or it might be over time we realize, wow, when I come in this place every single time, I feel this, you know, desire to lift my eyes. Or, um, you know, I take note of the light or, you know, so on. Yeah. I really like those kinds of conversations. And I, I think it's... I think it's really interesting the people who do architecture and get to think about this and, and yeah. what they're what what effect they're having on the people who come in. Yeah. And it, it's a fascinating topic. I wish we had an architecture program just so I could, <laughs> you know, hear hear these folks yeah. talk about that more yeah. because it's so interesting. And, yeah. You know, we didn't get to design the structure itself of of the shops, but but working with working with the space we were given, I think we still were trying to 
trying to deliver some of those kinds of things. Um, yeah, but anyway, it's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Yeah. So you've got one thing I noticed about Modero is that, and I guess Barefoot's is this way too, but in a different way. There's more, there are more lighter colors in Modero, mm-hmm. but in both cases, the color scheme is more minimalistic. Mm-hmm. There aren't a whole lot of uh, bright, shiny colors. Like you don't see greens or oranges or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So does that speak to the 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 whole place sort of stepping back and not commanding your attention or focusing the attention on itself? Certainly Madero, because that yeah. was, um, that was, I mean, this does go back in some ways to just the style of trying to deliver a clean but urban feel yeah. in yeah. those ways. So, you know, a, a really light gray, that's mm-hmm. pretty much what I said from the beginning, and we went with that, which was great. I'm really pleased with how Madero turned out. With Barefoots, actually, it was green in the beginning. You may not know this. It was green. I for remembered a few that years. it was repainted. I didn't yes. remember what the original color mm-hmm. was. It was green in That's the beginning. That's hilarious. Yeah. And uh, it was a. Um, Jonathan Gillette was here at the time, and okay. he helped with the whole overall design. And he, he wanted us to do a really mint green, and we ended up doing a little bit warmer of a green than that. He was always ahead of his time, and he. So, of course, years later, I'm like, of course we should have done mint. That was so much uh-huh. more interesting. I didn't know it then, and, and I was working with the students, and so we, we kept choosing all kinds of green paint color samples, and we went with the one we did. Uh, and I think it worked fine for the time. I think it was a, a right color for then, but we were just ready to refresh. But it is really hard to choose color for that room because it's enormous. It's very dark. Yeah. They're almost... there's so little natural light. We have the door and we have that one giant window. And it has multiple functions. Yes, that's right. Like it's not just a coffee shop. It's also a concert venue. That's right. Yeah. And the, and the black ceiling, I think also adds to the darkness. So we have lots Uh of things working against us in terms of darkness, but as for a venue, it's actually nice to have dark. So yeah. I, so in terms of the color, sure, the gray, I think, is um, in a large, yeah, in a large way, it's trying to just be minimal and not command. Because, again, all that darkness, you have to do something light and not, t- to me, not too colored. Yeah. So if it, yeah. Was, if it was too blue or too green, I think that would have been the wrong choice for now. I, I think the gray is fine. I think it works. Yeah. So when did you, when did you come into your position of managing, I guess it was Barefoot's before Modero. Yes. uh, I started, I began working at Union in the summer of 2007, which was the year of of the tornado. Yeah. So, so I started. You started before or after the tornado? Before. Before. So I was here about, you know, six months or so. I started in June. Tornado hit in February, February 5th of 2008. So I had been... I mean, the funny part of this is I was hired to do other other things. And when I got here, the very last thing on my job description said that I was in charge of this student lounge. Okay. And I said, uh, I said to Matt Brunette, who was with me, and what is this? <laughs> what is this part? I don't know what this is. And he said, oh, it's no big deal. You just have to have some students who check out ping pong um, paddles and pool sticks. Right? Okay. That was what it was. It was, a, it was a room where we had ping pong tables and pool tables. Sometimes arcade games would come you know, in and out for, I think that was more for the summer. 
And I only had to make sure I had students staffing that desk, you know, during the day. Very minimal, of course. Well, yeah. then that fall, we had had a, a student, there was a group of students who proposed a coffee shop that fall. It's not the first group of students who've proposed a coffee shop. That's that's happened before. But, um, you know, they put together this proposal. Uh, or they were they were talking about it. And um, Dean Kimberly Thornberry was the mm-hmm. uh, of our student services at the time. And so she said, well, put together a, a real proposal. So they did that work. And it was a great proposal. It was um, it was collaborative. It was trying to pull from different departments and let students have real experience doing things. It was it was great an idea. Um, in order to set up the coffee side, they said, we need $50,000 to make this work. And, you know, of course, we were like, well, that's great, but there's no pot of money sitting around to, to for good ideas. Mm-hmm. If there were, I guarantee it would have been spent quickly because everybody has ideas for great things that we could do here. We just we just always need more resources to, anywhere. You know, yeah. you know how it is. Yeah. We could do all kinds of things if we had unlimited access to, you know, resources. So we said, that's so great, but... We don't have that money right now, but let's just kind of hold it for now and see. So that so when so when the tornado hit, um, Dean Thornberry called me and called those students and called Matt Brunette, who had been he had done some of my work before, which is why we 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 crossed over a little bit. And she said, "You can you guys make that room into a gathering place for students?" I. What's you know what's going to happen is all of these students are going to live off campus because the dorms were what were damaged. Mm-hmm. They're going to live off campus for this semester. They're going to come to campus. They're going to go to class, and then they're going to have nowhere to go between class because we had that old small library. There was such little space for just being right. And she said, "Can you just make that room a gathering place?" And they need to be together. They have just been through trauma, and they need they need time. Yeah. in space to be together and heal from that, you know. So she she had gotten some grant money, and she said, okay, take, you can have this much grant money and, and just make, do whatever you can with it. I don't know about the coffee. Just make it into a place. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. We, we set out and we renovated everything. It was a group of students we had a number of volunteers. Lots of people came in and out. We had a couple of hired things that we did, like painting the ceiling, installing lights, and um, ultimately finishing the floors. Um, but these students worked so hard. I mean, they did not sleep very much for a few weeks. I was with them most of the time, but we, um, when they wanted to change the floors, they had to scrape the glue off the floor. And I was like, this is going to take all night. Matt and I both were, you know, we, we left them and we're kind of worried about them, but they scraped this glue all night. And we did most of the renovation work ourselves apart from those hired pieces. The coffee side, we, we worked on, can we get some of this in, but we just didn't have uh, time or space to do a lot. So we ended up buying just a commercial coffee pot like you would use at a church and uh, that's really what we had we just had coffee and tea we opened um march 1st so it was i think we had, i think we were working on it for about three weeks we had this is 2008 this is still 2008 right okay. so you know all the students went home after the tornado everybody was sent away these students stayed and got to work on this and i and i just testify that that was a healing experience for us to work together. The, f- the physicality of that work and doing it together and doing it for the good of our, you know, fellow 
people mm-hmm. who were going to come back was was enormously healing, I think, for that group. Um, so we worked on it. The students all came back and started class, and we were still working on it for a week. And we papered all the windows and the doors. Nobody knew what was going on in there, and it was really fun. And I think it gave people something to look forward to and something positive to come out of a really hard season. So it was really sweet in a lot of ways. And I think that's part of why there's just this beloved, you know, attitude toward barefoots. Because I think from the beginning, it really has had this spirit of love that's come from students for students. And so it's really sweet. And that's continued for like 10 years, 11 years. It's pretty miraculous that it still carries that spirit about it. Um, But we opened March 1st and, you know, like all the all the paper came down at the windows we opened the door we served coffee and you know snacks and it was just really fun we had a concert that night as part of it but it was really uh it was very dynamic the whole night was lots of people were there and then and then we opened from then on and you know the coffee was terrible we didn't know what we were doing with the coffee we were just trying to brew coffee uh but we had concerts um pretty soon right after that we started having shows and so that's also been from the beginning we had the the stage was built during that um during that whole season of renovating it and or this whole season it was really like three weeks but so that what i forget what you asked me but that's where that started and I don't know. Can yeah. you remind me what you asked? No, me? this is <laughs> I'm awesome. Just you the I all of I didn't know most of that story, mm-hmm. um, so that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, when did the coffee start getting better? Okay, so that summer, um, I, there's like things that popping in my mind that I want to tell you, like the bricks that are under the bench on the wall. The bricks that are under okay, the so bench. Okay, so the bench, that's, this is, uh, I'm going to come back to your question, but okay, that, yeah. you know that bench on the wall under the windows into the hallway? Yeah. Okay, there are bricks underneath that that, okay. that hold up the bench. Right. Those are from waters. Those are from the old dorms. That's the, just neat. The, the ruins. Yeah, yeah, there's the, okay. I, I, I saw them starting to, to demolish and I grabbed a wheelbarrow okay. and I ran over there with somebody and we okay. threw some in the, we had no idea what we were going to do with them, but we used those. And, um, uh, Meredith Walter Holder now, uh-huh. um, her father built that bench. Her brother built the sound booth, and she recovered all the all the um, chairs, and she built our mugs yeah. in, in the beginning, although those are all, unfortunately, have all broken. but um, So her creative hand was very involved in it. And um, anyway, you see that show up. So I was just thinking about those yeah. details are always fun to tell yeah. people. Yeah. Um, so that summer, normally Union hosts Centrifuge in the summer, and that summer, we didn't have the dorms to host them. So um, we did not have centrifuge. And it was really quite a grace because we had all been running since the tornado happened. We were all just running and trying to make make that semester work. So when that summer came, um, I guess it was in the spring, I met a student. Or I, kn- I knew this student, but she said, you know, my parents are connected to this friend at church who bought out this coffee shop you know, a couple of years ago and has put all of it in storage and has decided he doesn't actually want to open a coffee shop and is open to selling it. Hmm. So we connected with him and uh, pretty much just bought out his storage unit. I didn't really know what all we were getting. I didn't know enough about coffee um, equipment at the time. Uh, thankfully, we got good stuff. So we, we ended up with a La Marzocco machine, which is... I don't know what that is. It's a really good brand. So okay. it's, it's, a, it's one of the um, really well-known... Um, brands of machines so that was a great thing that we ended up with that machine now it's old and it's we've had to rebuild that machine 
in, in pieces okay. many times over the years. Um, but it's a great machine, and um, if anything, it's just not quite as strong as we would like it to be, but it's still a really ste- you know, steady machine. Uh-huh. So anyway, we bought all of that, and Nurse Paul, because he didn't have campers, he volunteered to help build the bar out. So we had... I, I sketched what I thought we needed. We had some work tables, so we really worked with what we already had. We had a, uh, we had the sink installed, a hand sink installed, and then Nurse Paul just built out the structure around it. Mm. And uh, I had never worked in coffee before, so I did not know quite what to do in terms of the flow. But it's but it's worked. We had I mean we had ideas about wanting the barista to be seen. We wanted the people to be able to see the barista work, so that they understood um, something about what was happening and could even see that it was being each piece was being made for this drink rather than any kind of pre-made mix mm-hmm. or something, and that it was actually going to be handcrafted all the way through. So that's one reason you see the barista in Barefoots, and then. Otherwise, I mean, the flow, the flow, I think, works overall, but it's there's lots of things I would change now, you know, because okay. I know more about the flow of what the barista needs. But we've we've made it work, and it's been great, and we've, you know... So anyway, I'm not yeah. answering. Nurse Paul built the bar as it is now, and uh, a few pieces are from the original design, the front piece of wood that's latticed as it is. That's from the original. And the mug shelf, Meredith had envisioned but we just didn't build it nurse paul ended up building it that summer so he's the one to thank for the bar now and we started we started serving you know full coffee at that point Mm -hmm. beginning that semester that fall semester again still learning john elford was our um was our roaster in town at the time he was a distributor and a roaster so we worked with him we learned from him and um, Jesse Myers became a barista some something around 2011, I think, and he wanted to learn how to roast. He got really interested in the coffee as he was learning, and so he wanted to learn how to roast. He learned with John as John had decided he was going to move and get another job. So Jesse ended up taking on John's roasting, basically, and then we we then installed roasters at Union in 20 the end of 2011, I guess, and started roasting in 2012. Okay. So that's kind of the timeline. We um, we had to grow that when we opened Madero. So we bought a much bigger roaster and started that process um, in 2015 when, when Madero opened. So that's, that's a quick history. Now, Andrew Massey, mm-hmm. um, when we when Macklin and I first started this podcast, he was one of our first guests, mm-hmm. and he was telling us that that you guys got connected with a company that that gathers coffee from local farms. Um, Is he talking about our importer? That yes, okay. yes. Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess what what's the what is the process of the coffee from the time it's grown until it ends up uh, in the barista's hands? Sure, that's a good question. Um, okay, so the. F- um, how, do, how do I begin this? We work with an importer okay. because we're not a big enough shop to direct buy. So um, what I mean by that is that we buy, you know, maybe a pallet of coffee. And these are big bags. They're, you know, 150 pounds about of bags. And we buy maybe 10 bags or so. And it lasts us about a semester. Okay. Really busy shops are buying a pallet 
like a week or something. Uh-huh. So they're much they're much busier. They're they're moving through coffee much more quickly, and because of that, they can buy directly sometimes from from smaller. Um, from farmers directly or from smaller kind of setups. Okay. We just aren't big enough to do that. We, w- there's no way it would work on either side for the farmer or for us. Uh-huh. So we've always worked with an importer, Cafe Imports, and I've really liked them. We had we had we worked with Matt Brown. He's great, and what they do is they are they are the in between, and they're the they are the specialty coffee importer at large. I mean, yeah. people t- typically work with them if, okay. they're, if they're in specialty coffee. And I should say specialty coffee is a particular category of coffee. It's the top 10% in the world. We should talk about that yeah. at some point. Well, yeah. that, I mean, yeah. that's kind of a quick answer. Okay. It's, just, okay. It's, it's Arabica coffee and it's the top 10% in the world is considered specialty and that's what they carry. So we would buy often in the top 5% of coffee in the world because we would, we would move through their selections and choose what we liked. And what determines... The, the quality, like what moves the percentage one way or the other? Um, it, all coffee is graded and, and actually scored. So it'll, it, when it's, when it's, when it goes between the auction and when it's gone to auction basically, and there's the people trying to sell it and the importers trying to buy it, they've, they've graded it and given it a number. Mm-hmm. And then the importer can tell us what the numbers are. And, and that's deciding in a large way. Um, and it's going to move because coffee is an agricultural plant so uh-huh. you know one batch can be defected of course um yeah but that's that they're they're handling that kind of scoring at that level and then when they when we get it we just know that you've you've ensured this is in the top 10 uh-huh. percent, and that we're okay we just typically are buying in the top five percent because of what we're choosing okay um so so if i if i can like switch now to say the farmer's the farmers are growing coffee. It's a, it's like any agricultural plant. It, you know, it grows, it develops over the year, they harvest it, they process it. There are lots of different ways to process how they, not a lot, but there are multiple ways to process the coffees. Um, they have to get to certain percentages in terms of moisture to sell mm-hmm. it. And then it goes to, um, uh, you know, the auction or, uh, the sale and then the importer's going to buy it. And then it's going to go to the importer's warehouse. The importer has this master list of all the coffees they have currently available. When we're ready to buy, we ask for the, a copy of that current list. They give us that copy. And I would always let the roaster handle this. So Levi did it for a number of years, and then Andrew did it last yeah, year. Yeah. Well, And Levi actually was with him because Levi has stayed involved with us over the, um, the whole time. Uh-huh. They would go through and see, you know, in terms of price, um, country, tasting notes, what sounds good, what do we think will go well for our customers. And then we would order samples of, you know, maybe 10-ish coffees. Matt would sometimes say, let me throw in these two because I think they're really good and you might like them. So we would end up with sometimes like 12 samples, which is a lot actually to cup because it's hard to it's hard to distinguish them when you've been tasting. They start to all taste the same. They start, it's, it's a little tricky to do that many. We, we did do it, but it's, I would always think, uh, (laughs) so we, we get them, we get these, you know, small, we get small amounts. Um, Levi or Andrew would roast them and then we would cup them and taste them and talk about what we think was, you know, was going on there. And then we would choose maybe five ish coffees and we would purchase those. Mm -hmm. So that's our, that's our method. Um, I was going to mention that with the farms, 
many times these farmers are either they're multi-cropping, they're doing a lot of different things, or um, they're they're often on small-scale farms. So, I mean, this, most of the people that we're buying from. So a lot of times they will, a community will share a washing station and a processing station. So they, they might take their coffee over to this place, and it's generally would be called a co-op. Or, or okay. um, you'll sometimes see the language of smallholders. And that means that in the same little section, they've come together and they've processed together so that if, if the coffee has been mixed, it's still really isolated to this particular section. Um, and that's really nice because you're, in a sense, when you're buying those coffees, you're supporting that whole community and, mm-hmm. and how their, um, their co-op is being run. And they're helping each other, which is a really great way for them to do business because they're sharing certain parts but you know the land is their is their own and they're working that that land but then they're sharing the yeah the more expensive methods of of and often water is in a is in a low supply so that's one way that's handled um so so i guess to to clarify and what andrew said i think we we certainly are buying from farms and from smallholders when uh-huh. we when we're buying coffees um the 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 importers that we work with have been to have been to origin all over the place. They are very aware of what's going on, um, but they they're not always necessarily going up to a farmer and saying, "We want to buy your coffee today." But they're still probably working with it. And I haven't been, so yeah. I can't speak yeah, to yeah. that in, in a very direct way. But my guess is that they're still um, it's they're still coming into the the region and they're tasting different coffees and saying, "We want this one and this one." That, that's my guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not like it's not like the coffee is coming from some huge industrial no, company. No, it's not. That's, no, it's yeah, not. It's, mm-hmm. it's local farms. Absolutely. Even if it's a yes. small group of local farms, yes. it's still... Okay. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And that's where our importer, you know, for us to trust our importer is important. And yeah. I've really liked working with them. Uh, they, they're good people. They're very involved at the origin level. And so I, I know that we're getting a good product and we're getting a trustworthy product and they'll tell us everything they can. Yeah. And often we will have stories of the farmers. You know, if we, if we're wanting to, you know, work on our uh, coffee cards or something, I'll often read about these farmers, which is pretty amazing because you just realize that our, that our work is actually supporting the life of this farmer. And that's wonderful because yeah. we're, we're so removed from these people who are growing the coffee often. Um, but to be able to, to see some of those effects is, is really sweet and, and helps encourage, I think, our work and helps us to remember to be good stewards of the materials that we have. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. I've heard, I mean, I've heard horror stories of, of lesser quality uh, products where, you know, if, if, if the coffee is stored in a bad location and then it gets moldy, the farmer ends up not getting paid, Oh yeah. you know, just, just terrible yeah. stories like that. Yeah. So that's, yeah. it's nice to hear situations like this where, yeah, it's good quality and, and, and good relationships. Mm-hmm. Like the whole, the whole thing is positive. That's great. Yeah. And it's, it is important to help support the farmers. You know, that, that's one thing I've really liked about Cafe Imports is that I've had, I've had conversations with Matt about you know, how to think about even philanthropic work with mm-hmm. coffee because we, we will have questions like that sometimes. And and he he said they have questions like that too. And he said it's really important actually to help the farmer make better coffee because that's going to be a sustainable way for them to continue growing their livelihood. So he's done things, not he in particular, but Cafe Imports has done things sure. like give farmers moisture gauges who 
don't have them so that they can actually make sure they meet the moisture level because otherwise they can have coffee that's not sellable. Yeah. And you can imagine how devastating that oh, would be yeah. to, an, to a family's income when that's really your income is yeah. your crop. Yeah. And when you have a whole crop that can't go, it's, it's, I mean, it's devastating. Mm-hmm. So, and, and of course these are often in poor countries. So the, the amount of money they make is, is paltry compared to what we, um, you know, what, what we pay. It's, that's hard, but I mean, that's part, it is part of the economy of the whole thing. Uh, so I've liked that, you know, there's, there's some coffees we've carried where, um, they've, Cafe Imports has hosted a competition and, and the, and the ones that win the competition then get to, uh, decide where the money goes for their community. Hmm. So, um, you know, they'll, they'll win and then they'll, they'll get amount amount of money to say, okay, do you want to build a school? Do you want to build a hospital? What does your community need? And, um, and then we've had, we've had some coffees where that's just happening without a contest. Like that's, it's going into the community too. There's a portion going to a community development. So that's, those are ways I've, I've been really encouraged by working with Cafe Imports because they're looking at how to help develop um, both the farmer's uh, consistent livelihood and the whole, the whole community rather than just influx of cash, you yeah. know, as a, yeah. as a, a, a good intention of charity, but sometimes not helpful because that, then they don't know what to expect the next year. Right. So to right. actually help them grow better coffee means they're going to make more money. They're going to sell it better. It's going to be a longer, a longer term development. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm. So if you go to um, a place like Starbucks, a lot of times, well, I guess all the time, what you get is you get a consistent product every time. Mm-hmm. The coffee tastes the same no matter which Starbucks you go to, um, which for them, with so many stores all across, well, really the world, that's helpful to have a consistent experience. That's right. But what you're talking about with a specialty coffee shop like Modero and Barefoot's, it's a completely different experience. That's right. right. So one batch of coffee isn't going to taste the same as the next batch. Um, and there are different countries of origin and they all have different, as you call them, notes, different mm-hmm. flavors That's and right. mm-hmm. things that have to do with the land. Mm-hmm. So really each, not only each bag, really each cup is a completely different experience. Yes, that's right. And, and that, that, those are important things you just pointed out. They're really, di- we're just different there are different aims happening, yeah, yeah. right? And that's really important because it's, it's, I think it's a, a bit ridiculous to just, you know, for people to roll their eyes at Starbucks or something. Cause I think yeah. so much good is going on there. Yeah. First of all, we can only do what we do because of Starbucks. Yeah. So we should yeah. always nod to that. And, um, and then I think it's just significant to notice what it, what are the aims of these businesses? So, for Starbucks, their aim is that you get the same coffee in Jackson, Tennessee, in San Jose, in Vienna, mm-hmm. in Tokyo. You get the same coffee. That's hard to do yes. because coffee is a crop and it's yes. a variable crop. So they're and, and I'm not uh, um, I don't know Starbucks roasting. I don't I'm not a buyer for them. So I don't actually know how this works. Sure. My best understanding would be that they are having to mix a large portion of coffee from a region. So instead of it being um, a farm within Rwanda, they're taking many farms within Rwanda, they're mixing mm-hmm. all those coffees, and then they're roasting them to have a, a similar profile so that they can ship a Rwanda coffee around the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, And 
um, what they don't want are the individual notes of one farm in Rwanda from another farm in Rwanda. Now, they may still want Rwanda to have some distinction of Rwanda instead of Costa Rica, you know, but they they want to reduce the individuality because they want to serve um, people the same coffee everywhere. Right, right. And I should note, the customer wants that. Yes. Customers are asking for that, which is why Starbucks has gone the way that it's gone is because of the demand of the, of the patron, you mm-hmm. know. And so because people want often the consistency of knowing that at the airport or, you know, again, in, um, uh, you know, Jacksonville, Florida, I can get the same cup of uh, cup of coffee. Yeah. So, you know, that's going to happen at that level. It's also going to happen at the roasting level, which I was alluding to in that they're trying to get rid of the individualities, I think. And, and again, I'm not a roaster. I'm not um, totally sure how they do this. It's just, yeah. just my best yeah. understanding of yeah. how they would get to that product. Yeah, um, but this is helpful to talk about though for people who aren't used to thinking about specialty coffee. Right, you know, if their right. own their their only experience is Starbucks. Yeah. And Modero yeah. may taste completely different, but they they don't know exactly why. Right. So that's right. Yeah. That's right. And and I think that they're they are trying to hit particular profiles and say they're espresso. So they yeah. they they really want their espresso to taste the way that it tastes, and they're trying to hit that point. And I would imagine that the Starbucks roasters are the people who taste the most coffee of all is my guess. I mean, they really, I think they must really know coffee. Yeah. So, so what they're after is what they're after and that's what they're aiming toward. Shops like us are just aiming towards something different, which Mm -hmm. is the individuality. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think we can accomplish that because, I mean, we can do that because we're small shops and because people come in knowing, you know, there's only one Madero and I'm you know, I'm only going to get this one coffee for as long as it lasts and then it's gone. And that's part of it. Uh-huh. And it's part of the fun of it, actually. But it's also I know that, you know, this batch of um, Columbia is going to run out soon and I don't know what's going to be next uh-huh. as a customer, you know. So there's th- those things are going on. And I think we we have the freedom um, to to do that actually because of Starbucks, because they have normalized coffee being something you get outside of your home. And so now shops that are in the kind of specialty realm or uh, versions of that are able to do a more distinct coffee and and bring out the variability because of uh, it's normalized for people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because the more we do that and the more people, as you were talking about for you and your wife, the more you get interested in coffee, the more you actually like you know, tasting yeah, something yeah. different and distinct. Yeah. And so then it becomes a, wow, I didn't realize that coffee could have so many flavors. Yeah. I didn't realize that coffees tasted different, you know, by country. And nor did I realize that the very same mountain of, you know, where coffee is grown on two different sides, those two different coffees can taste very different yeah. because of yeah. the side of the mountain they're on and what kind of sunlight they're getting and what kind of rainfall and where what the elevation is. All of that's affecting the taste of a coffee. So yeah. when we get a coffee, when it comes to us, it already has tastes inside of it. Uh, it you know, like a, a Nicaragua that's grown, like I was saying, on one side of a mountain, it has particular tastes already inside of it. So the roaster's job is to roast it in such a way to pull out those flavors and, and then to stop before he imposes a roasty flavor that starts to mute those individual flavors. So that's really the roaster's job is to learn okay. how to roast to bring out um, those individualities and not impose too much roasty flavor, okay. you know? Okay. Um, and, and that's where I think, um, our distinction is really 
in terms of roasting, that's where the big distinction is, is that we're trying not to impose roasted, roasted flavors on it. Um, I mean, you have to get a little bit of that, but to not too, too much. Whereas um, if you're trying to get rid of individualities, that's one way you do it is to roast out some of those, those tastes. So I'm not a roaster, but I can at least understand that sure. much from, yeah. from my work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what I've discovered just as a, as a consumer, as an enjoyer of coffee is that being able to distinguish the different tastes does not come automatically. No, it does not. Like no. I, I've been, I've been experimenting with coffee for maybe somewhere between six months and a year now, mm-hmm. and I'm only just now yes. starting to get to where I can barely yes. taste differences. And apparently, temperature plays a big part of it. It does. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like the start of the cup and the end of the cup might mm-hmm. taste completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, so strange. The grind is a huge component. Mm-hmm. Like it's such a complicated thing. It is. Um, and we've, my wife and I have discovered that we really like Rwanda. Yeah, I, I do too. <laughs> that's not like, that's not one that you normally hear about. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you know, that's not one of like the top, I guess, coffee countries by a lot of lists that you might see, but it's delicious. It's, it's very good. Really Rwandas good. are often really complex coffees. And I think that's probably why people don't always, uh, sometimes they're just overwhelming in the, okay. in the senses. And so I don't know that everybody knows what to do with them. Maybe, okay. Maybe that's, okay. I don't yeah. know. That's my guess. Yeah. I really like Rwanda because I'm always surprised by the cup. Like there's always something different going on. But there, there are a lot of uh, countries in their, that their product is a really just like a nice and easy cup that most people are going to like. And, and that's often kind of Central America. It's like Colombia mm. is, a, is a really trustworthy kind of coffee where most people are going to like it. I hear a lot of people like Colombia. Yeah, and that's why. I mean, it's it's so it's so smooth, it's easy to drink. You you know, you often have flavor notes that people typically like. So when you get into coffees like Rwanda, Kenya might be another example. Mm. Kenyas are often really bright coffees. Uh, you might get a lot of lemony notes in a in a Kenya. And again, I'm talking very generally right now cuz sure. coffees are di- sure. are individual. Um, but Rwandas are often really complex and there's, um, that's how it feels when I drink it. I think there's like layers of things going on and I can't even name them sometimes. And it's a lot of fun to try to figure it out. And I don't know that everybody likes that. You know, some people are not going to, are not going to enjoy a cup that is kind of like what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or some people don't like lemony coffees and so Kenya's might be too bright for them. And, um, so you, so you may, that may be why you hear about some over others. Okay. That makes sense. Have y'all ever gotten coffee from Indonesia? No, we um, we we cup. We will. We actually try to bring in. Um, you know, Sumatra is an, is one that a lot of people like, and yeah. we try to cup Sumatra. You know, periodically we bring in a sample, and we just consistently don't take to it. Okay, and I think that could be partly our own you know so that when we cup it's often me and the roasters and so both Levi and Andrew have been involved the last the last year and before that was Levi and me and maybe a, maybe one of the braces would want to pop in and, and help but usually we're the ones making the decisions and almost always it's the roasters decision okay. with my slight input because I just know that they understand so much more than I do about what they can fix and not fix in the in the um, in the, cause the, cause you roast a little differently when you cup because you need okay. to, you almost under roast a little bit just because you need to make sure you don't, um, cover up something that you need to taste. So they can tell the difference on that in ways that I can't, what was I saying? This is so complex. I know. I forgot. There's I so was. much to this. Well, we were talking about Indonesia. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've, I was, I lost my train of thought. So, 
when we've tried in anything in that kind of realm, but Sumatra is a regular one that we've tried, we just have not loved it. And I think it's often, it, it, it may be our own biases in that we don't, we, we tend to not like the earthy flavors as much. Um, but they're, yeah, I, we just haven't always loved them. And sometimes you can get, um, you can get some of those kind of profiles with the Brazil. It's often okay. Brazils are really yeah. nutty and chocolatey and you can usually get some of those. And, and sometimes they're for us, we've liked them better than the Sumatras. Um, you know, we've, we've had some really different places that have been great. Like we've had a Papua New Guinea a couple mm. of times that, um, we, you know, we've tried some different areas that, Sometimes we try and we're like, no, it's not, it's not good. And then sometimes we'll be like, yes, this yeah. we're gonna do this. Or um, Burundi is another example where sometimes we'll try and it's, um, it, it's a hit or miss place with the coffees. When it's when it's on though, we're like, let's do it, you know. So we've we've tried, so, you know, we've tried some of the Indonesian areas, and it's just, I again, I, it's probably got to do partly with our own biases, but um, we just haven't loved them. So we. I was just curious. Yeah. yeah, I was just curious. My wife is from Indonesia, yeah. and so. We, I've, I've had a decent amount of yeah, Indonesian coffee yeah, and I was just uh-huh. curious. Yeah. yeah. We, we have, we really do try cause we know people have asked, you know, about looking and we just haven't, we've just not found ones that we've loved. So it's yeah. been a long time yeah. since we've had. Well, I'm, coffee. I'm glad that y'all are so particular about it <laughs> because it makes for a really good oh, end product. So thanks. that's a good thing. Thanks. Um, Man, I want to ask you about the Barefoots concert, yeah. and I also want to, time permitting, ask you about poetry. So, I don't know, we might not have time for both. Yeah. So, what would you like to talk about? Well, let's do the concerts now, and we okay. can, poetry can maybe be another time. Okay, yeah, we, sounds we good. Yeah, because yeah. I want to be able to devote a good amount of time to it. Um, so, if you started, well, you said that you said the concerts began after the tornado, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just trying to make sure my timeline is straight. So yes. you have, you have, you were around since the beginning of the concerts. Yes. Because before it was just a student lounge. Right. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I guess first of all, how did you go about deciding who to have and who not to have? Because it seems to be just looking at the list of who all has been playing at Barefoots. It seems to be a pretty consistent. Not really genre, but more just kind of feel. Mm-hmm. They, there's kind of a similar feel amongst all the groups, mm-hmm. even though, again, they might not all be the same genre. So how did you go about deciding that? Well, I was involved with music slightly before Barefoots because okay. in, my, in my other roles I was doing um, homecoming concerts and things like that. So I had done a little bit there with Barefoots in particular, um, so the student group that I mentioned who helped, who proposed the shop and who, who did the work to build it and so on, uh, of that group, a few were kind of the leaders, and they, we, we formed a leadership team mm-hmm. right away. And our very first task, once we got through the construction side of, you know, renovation, um, was, to f- was to define the place and uh, and this actually, I, I always give a nod to my friend Dr. Taylor Worley for this yeah, because yeah. he he said to me, if you don't define this place, other people will because it's new and it's different, wow. and everybody will want to use it, and yes. they will they will say what it is if you don't. And I'm so thankful. Wow, that's good. <laughs> I'm so thankful he gave me that word because I, you know I was exhausted. We were trying to open this 
you know, this brand new space and, and place. And uh, it, that was not at the front of my mind yet. Yeah. So he says that, and we started working on a mission statement from there. And in a lot of ways, that really has, um, it, it formalized the things we were already thinking about. I should say that. It wasn't that we just came up with that out of the blue. It was the things we were already in conversation about as a team. But it also has now been a thing that consistently drives some of the decisions that we have to make. And um, so, yeah, so I just, I guess I just say that to say we do have a mission statement. Part of what drives us comes from that. Mm-hmm. In practice, um, we have, on the leadership team, we've always had somebody who's designated to lead with music. So their their primary role on the team is to research bands, to be reading music blogs, to be uh, aware of what's going on at large in the music world. And that's, of course, enormous. And you mm-hmm. can imagine how much time that sometimes asks of these students. But that's been their their role. Do this research, pay attention, find out what people are listening to, what are you listening to, what are you interested in, and then to propose bands. Uh, to It usually comes kind of directly to me, but they're always in conversation. The team is, is yeah. they're often, because we're working together, they become friends, and if they, if they weren't already friends. So they're, they're already in conversation about these bands. And then um, often that student and I work together on the booking process from there. That's the kind of large, large frame of it. Um, I, in terms of genre, I will say that we, we've tried to look at more variability in terms of what we bring. And it sometimes it's just hard because the venue doesn't, yeah, some things just don't work in that venue. So that has, that has limited us in some regard, but we have tried to we have tried to push out a little bit so that we're not doing the you know the same thing all of the time. But I think because these students are listening to so much music, they hear more nuance sometimes than other people might realize mm. between bands. That's interesting. Yeah, so I have to sometimes remind them these sound really similarly, even though you hear them as really distinct. Uh, you know, your audience may not recognize some of this. So you know, there, so that's a really small thing in terms of how we go about doing it um it's there's lots of ambitious things we're thinking about and then there's also just the practical time dimension that we're up against always um from the beginning we wanted to give to have a place where students could engage with popular music that they're listening to in their you know cars or their dorm rooms and now on their iPods and or I, your phones. Now you don't even probably have separate iPods. Um, I we, saw an iPod <laughs> the other day, and I was like, "Hey, I what remember those." <laughs> yeah, they're so small. They're so small. I know. Yeah. Um, so w- what we wanted to do, we we didn't have a great place for that on campus where students could, you know, come and listen to bands that they might actually listen to, you know, again on their on their phone or something, a Spotify at this point, mm-hmm. um, and. And we wanted to do so in a way that would help them really engage with the music in some ways. We we live in a culture, um, and it's just really endemic for us to treat entertainment as a kind of passive thing. Yes. So we turn on a film, or we turn on a TV show, or we just turn on music, and we lean back, and we let it wash over us, however it's going to do that. And it is it is 
fine to have times where we're, I, I don't think entertain, being entertained is a wrong thing. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that we, we should be a little bit more active in that process because those things actually shape us a lot and in ways we don't always realize, you know. Um, I was just at a conference this last week, and um, there's a, a professor at John Brown University. Her name is Jessica Hooten Wilson, and she gave this really short, uh, quick talk, and it was wonderful. She was presenting on Walker Percy, the writer, and she said, um, she said, she said Disney needs to read uh, Walker Percy, and the okay. reason is she said she gave us a, a couple of images of some Disney films from recent days, and she said, take notice of what they tell okay so if there's a a group of princesses i don't remember because i'm not um, up on disney films right now and i know the ones from my childhood but not the contemporary ones uh but the the one she was talking about was this group of princesses who were trying to help this one who hadn't who was you know trying to figure out her life and the solution that they said was look in the mirror and she said that's often what's what's communicated in these kind of Disney films, look in the mirror, look into yourself, and there's the answer, right? And um, and so she was contrasting that with Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos, who um, is doing some really, really creative things in that book. And, and part of what he does is, is to say, reach out, reach out, reach out. You know, don't just look in yourself. You know, that's not where the answer is ultimately going to lie. And, um, and, you know, of course... Of course, we can look at God at work within us, and certainly there's a place for that kind of um, inner life and introspection, but that's not where the answer ultimately lies. And I think that that's part of what is devastating um, for, for us at this point in our culture is that we're trying to find our answers inside, and that's not where they lie. And um, so that, you know, that's an that's a example of um, you know, popular movies and, yeah. um, and a, a slightly dated book, but so th- I, I give that to say those kinds of things are happening to us with, with music and with other forms of entertainment. And we really were trying to help make a place where um, where we were inviting people to really listen and really engage with it, right? Not just to say, because this band is here, everything they say is wonderful and good and we agree with it right Mm -hmm. but instead to say what are they saying what are they playing how are they saying what they say in terms of the music yeah and uh, and to really um to see it as a to see the concert itself as a conversation in in a sense right where you're listening and you're responding and it doesn't mean you're always um conversing as we are right now but it does mean that there's a there is a kind of responsive uh, element happening within the audience and that um, it's not just background music and it's also not just um, you know like I said washing over me where I just absorb whatever is being said and I think we've I think we've done that we've we've tried to be at times more overt in that effort by say interviewing the artists and um and sometimes that went well, and sometimes it didn't. It just didn't kind of go as it didn't go poorly. It just didn't necessarily go as robustly as we might want. So I think we ended up trying to just let the thing do the thing instead yeah. of trying to. Um, I, I like interviews, but they, but to let the medium be its thing, you know. Let well, the, let I think the, a lot of times artists don't know what they're doing. Right, that's exactly they're, right. They're yeah. they're good at doing it, but that's it's right. hard. It's one thing to make good art, and it's another thing to articulate it. Those are two completely that's different right. things. That's and, right. Yeah, and it and it does shift the venue a little bit when you have an interview, and then you, 
and then you have a concert. It, it yeah. can change the dynamic there yeah. a little bit. And I think that was one thing we, we brushed up against with the artists, and, it, and I absolutely understand that. So we kind of dropped the interview and uh, tried to just let the shows be their own thing. Mm-hmm. One of the really wonderful things to me is that our, our audiences are so attentive, and I just love that we still have that. I think that came early somewhat by socialization, you know, like kind of peer pressure of just the way, I mean, we, we set up the room. Um, if it was a seated show that of course helps if it's a standing show, there's a little bit more chatter probably that would go on. But I think because in general, from the beginning, it was a, it was a pretty quiet crowd that just became more normal. And Mm -hmm. so it almost be, if somebody was talking, you know, you kind of look over your shoulder, like, like don't do that anymore. And I, I don't think that it was actually, um, any kind of reprimand was going on. It was more just that the culture of it sort of started helping other people understand the culture of it. And so there was, there is, it is much more of a listening room environment. And I tell bands that when we invite them, like this is, this is the kind of thing to expect. This is not a, a it's not going to be a rowdy background noise situation. These, these students are going to listen to the, to the music and, Oh, they, and uh, artists always mention it. They always okay. talk about how, um, what what a kind audience we have and, and how much, oh, isn't it great how they listen? And, you know, um, if anything, I think we've had to encourage the students to kind of give and be, and, you know, it's okay to, it's okay to yell or like, yeah. you know, clap or yeah. I don't mean yell meanly. I mean, like, it's okay to respond. Be and, engaged. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and have some fun with the, with the band because they also feed off your energy. So if you're, if you're too muted, you know, they, they may want some energy to, co- to come back at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, hosting artists has been one of the great joys of my work. I mean, I I just think being able to welcome people here and to feed them well and to, you know, help carry their gear and to just be kind to them and to make them coffee drinks. And, um, and, and we work hard, our sound guys work hard to give them good sound. And, and then when the audience is, is, as gracious and hospitable as they are, it just feels so wonderful to be part of that. And, and I, and so often the artists will comment on how surprised they are. You know, this, I didn't know what I was getting into coming to this school or this venue, didn't really know what it was. And, and then for this experience to be so meaningful and it just is, it's so true that this is a living thing. This uh, concert is a living thing and it's really special to have gotten to work with so many artists and to, and to see our students have this opportunity and to respond so well to it is really is uh, kudos to all you students out there who have been part of these shows. <laughs> this is exactly the kind of thing that Aaron Harden and I were talking mm-hmm. about not too long ago, yeah. the relationship between mm-hmm. the musician and yeah. The, uh, the audience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is a real relationship going on. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting, you know, I, when I go to concerts elsewhere and I'm, I'm, and I'm physically removed from the stage and of course I'm removed from the hosting cause I'm not, you know, part of the, that show. But when I'm, you know, up in an, in a seat far away, I, I am, I'm reminded how wild it is that we have this really intimate environment where the stage is just a couple of feet up, you know, from the, from yeah, the floor yeah. and the students are right up to the stage almost in terms of where they're sitting or standing. Yeah. And it's, I, yeah, it's really pretty wonderful what we get to do. And it's uh, in such a small scale. And it, I think it gives us a way to remember that these are human beings who are 
who are trying to make an art form that, and yeah. share that art form and who have worked hard to learn their instrument and who have um, written these lyrics and these um, these notes and you know th- this is a lot of work they're doing and they are they are trying to um, you know allow it to reach an audience and so for the audience to to respond to that to listen to that to mm-hmm. to um, you know give feedback and yeah I, th- I think it's pretty wonderful because it's it's an actual encounter with art I mean oh, it yeah. actually is an yeah. encounter with art yeah. because it's a living experience of art and and both sides feel it if they're attentive to it yeah. Yeah, and some of these artists are on their way to pretty successful careers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. you've had the Civil Wars. Yeah, we have uh, Derek Webb. Mm-hmm, yep. um, who else? We've had we've had a couple of really big artists. Um, yeah. Derek Webb, Sandra McCracken also came early. Okay. Um, we had Anna Thalo, who, okay. who you may not know now, but was uh, was a pretty big deal back then, and we we had them at the very end of their career as a band. Uh-huh. They were a blast. There were so many of them on stage, and they just give it their all. So okay. they were they were great. They were really early. Um, it's the Civil Wars came just before they broke and, and were huge. You know, yeah, were, I got, I think, yeah, I think yeah. On some big show right after us, which was crazy. Um, we had Leon Bridges. I heard that Leon Bridges yeah. was amazing. I actually didn't go yeah. to that one, but I wish I had. It's so unfortunate. It was every the, everything I've heard show. about that one was yeah. positive. It was yeah. my favorite show, and it, it, as yeah. it was happening, I was I leaned up. Joseph Smith was our music a student at the time, and I was like, "This is the show I've been wanting to have yeah. for years." Yeah, no, it I heard that was astounding. amazing. Yeah. yeah, which I mean, of course, I wanted. To, it, it, he was he's amazing. The whole band was amazing. They were they put on such a fantastic show, and it was really it was really beautiful. The whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a moving night. Uh, we've had Ben Solee and Scott Mulvihill, and okay. they are both instrumentalists who've played with um, with larger bands. Uh, so um, they they're doing solo work that that, that you know as of as we were having them, they were doing beginning to do solo work. So Ben Solee's played with Abigail Washburn and Bela Fleck, and then mm-hmm. um, Scott Mulvihill's played with Ricky Skaggs, and he just okay. came off a tour with. Um, Lauren Daigle. So they're, they're artists that are um, really, really talented and, um, you know, doing amazing work, but their solo work is maybe not as well known as their, the work they've done it uh, sure. with others. Um, who, uh, we've, we've had a, yeah, we've had a number, we've had the new respects and they're, okay. they, they came last, uh, two years ago and they just came this fall and man, they are, they are just astounding performers and great people. So we've just had some really great opportunities to have, Oh, we've had Joseph. Uh, they're they're, okay. they're yeah, a big yeah. deal, and yeah. um, I, was thinking, I think I was there for that. Yeah, one, they're I think. Yeah. just just. I mean, really, these are astounding musicians. Yeah. All the ones yeah. I'm naming, and and so many more that I'm just forgetting to name at the moment. But my personal yeah. favorite was um, I don't even know how to say their name. Seren, Seren. Yeah, Seren. Uh-huh. They were yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially great. the first time they came twice, mm-hmm. and man, that first time mm-hmm. it was great because they they weave in a lot of instrumental yep. sort of interludes yep. in between yep. the songs. Yep. So the whole the whole show ends up becoming one song That's really. Right. Yeah. And that was they beautiful. do they 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 sort of bleed one song into the next yeah. by way of instrumentation. Yeah. 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 Bleed is the wrong metaphor there. I'm sorry, but but Yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. To yeah. say what you're saying. Yeah. Um I saw I saw a video of them playing. I think it was either ACL or South by Southwest and I I just saw a video and I thought who is this band? And <laughs> yeah. I mean, so this yeah. this was one that just came out of 
for I mean, for us, it came out of nowhere because I just saw this video and I really liked it. And yeah. I thought our students are going to love this. Yeah. And they did, which was yeah. really wonderful because yeah. then we were able to have them back and they, you know, the line was like down the hall trying to get in before yeah. when we like, yeah. opened the doors. So, oh, it was so yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. I was first starting to get into music and mm-hmm. it was so exciting to mm-hmm. like to just kind of try to follow along with yeah. what they were doing. It was just, it was amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's been a real, it's been, you know, I forget about it cause we just do it. It's mm-hmm. part of the work of our, of our um, shops and our, our, you know, life here. But, but when I stop and think about it, I think what it is just astounding, the kind of people that we've had and that we've um, been able to welcome and get to know and, um, and, and even to be surprised by artists that we, you know, don't know as well. We had a um, we had an, uh, a band last year. Um, it goes by her her name, which is Bea Troxel, okay. and she was an opener, and she just floored me. I mean, she just was a it was a really really wonderful set, and you know, our whole team was talking about her later and listening to her album, and so it's it's fun in that way too, where you you know you connect with people that you don't know their music as well. They maybe they're openers or they're, you know, sometimes I let the students guide this conversation a lot. Uh, I I often am letting them propose and I, and then I'm kind of working through, is that a good fit? Uh, Instead of coming in with my own suggestions, partly because I am listening to music that's different than what the students listen to now. And I I do want it to have um, a a touch point for the current student. So, you know, it, it, sometimes I won't know the the bands as well. Yeah, ten years is a lot of time in the music world. It is a it lot is. changes. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just I'm, I'm they all stay eighteen yeah. to twenty two, and I'm <laughs> I'm just getting older. So, <laughs> well, another way that the students really participate is with the open mic nights. Yes, I mean that's, that's right. a chance for yeah. students that have been stuck in their books that's all right. you know for weeks on end. It's a chance for them to actually do something creative, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. fun. So that's right. Yeah, they love it. it. It's so it's such a great night, and it's our most. It is our most attended event, I mean, consistently, and yeah. partly because we only have one a semester, and uh, I think that helps generate a lot of uh, energy around the one. Yeah. But it's, I think one of the great things about Open Mic is it gives, it, first it gives students a chance to try out being on stage and performing. Mm-hmm. That is a scary thing to do, and many of these students have never done it before, or they might have done it once. When they come in, you know, they're they're, they're nervous, and they yeah. they they're exercising courage and and performing and that's wonderful to to give them that chance and what's great is you see them get better and you see you see them if they if they continue to do it by senior year you know our whole team is like over there celebrating these students who've been at this so many times and they've just gotten so comfortable and they're able to deliver more confidently and it's it's wonderful and and another cool thing about it is that it it will pull out students who are musicians who don't say have a band but they want to play and so they'll find someone else to play with and so you see these collaborations happen you know semester by semester where different people play together than you know than last time but they they've put together a song and uh it's it's wonderful it's um i think it's a great opportunity for us to 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 work within the art realm and to remember that the arts do something for us and through us that is just, you know, distinct and different. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy that, happy that the students really enjoy doing that. And so it's good. Well, I love talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, I'm so yeah. happy to be here. I'd Thank li- you. If you're willing, I'd love to have you back on and talk about poetry. Okay. Because that's a whole nother, like, <laughs> okay. it would, it, I'm, I'm glad that we didn't cut that short, but I would like to talk about it at some point okay. with you. So, okay. yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Signing out.